0: Whether we can study the interface between language and actual kind of thinking and reasoning capacities, I am dying to understand how that works. I think that's the most intriguing thing.
1: It's not clear to me that large language models are something that the world needs at all, certainly not larger and larger ones. That's not a um, like phenomenon in the world that, you know, a mountain that we climbed because it was there kind of a thing, right? We, we created the mountain as we were climbing it.
0: But if you want to build a system that can think, then it just seems a little bit misguided potentially to just try to think that language will just give you that. And again, I think the idea that it can comes from the fact that a lot of people think that language is what made us smart.
1: Does it matter whether machines are learning language as much as they're learning it differently from humans? Um, I would say yes in two ways. One is, to the extent that we're claiming that the machines are a model that we're going to use to study humans, then we need to be very clear about what the similarities and differences are, because that gives us the limits of the model. Um, and then, secondly, if we're going to be building technology that people are using, the way in which the system was learned might put some some limits or tell us something about the resulting system. This is Brain Inspired. <laughs>
2: Hello, good people. I'm Paul. Large language models have taken over in the AI world, as you likely know, uh, and their use has extended beyond language, as you also likely know. But in this episode, we're focused on the language versions. So these are the models that are trained on enormous volumes of text, usually online, and can do things like generate human-like language, answer questions, and so on. And the most successful versions of them, as of now, are based on the transformer mechanism, which I won't detail here, but basically works by learning the statistics of which words appear near other words. So one way they generate text is to look at what text has been produced so far and continuously predict which word might be good to insert next based on the previous words something called Next Word Prediction. Ev Fedorenko is a neuroscientist who runs the Ev Lab at MIT, and she, among others, has been testing how these models compare to how our brains process and generate language. And it turns out, Next Word Prediction seems to account for a large part of our language abilities, something we discuss during the episode. Emily Bender is a professor in computational linguistics at the University of Washington, and recently she has been considering questions like Whether the models understand the meaning of the text they produce, the answer is no. Whether we should be scaling up the models, as is the current trend, the answer also is no. So we discuss these topics as well. Another thing that we discuss is the relation between language and thought. Ev has amassed a large volume of data showing that the language network in our brains is distinct from our other cognition-related networks. Ev argues that this and other data indicate that language is not for complex thinking, as people like Noam Chomsky have argued, but instead, language is for efficient communication. So I brought Emily and Ev together to discuss these and other topics, and I really uh, enjoyed our discussion. I recommend you dive deeper into their works, which I link to in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 144. On the website, you can also learn how to support this podcast through Patreon, if you find it of value and or check out a free short video series i made called open questions in ai and neuroscience enjoy Ev, emily thanks for being on the podcast and welcome emily have, have you had a chance to look at my logo for brain inspired
1: uh, no i haven't
2: okay cuz i think that Should you would I go hate look it, it. Up? yeah go look it up <laughs> go to braininspired.co i think that you would really hate my logo uh, based on pre- previous things that you have uh, discussed
1: <laughs> yeah so so this is a logo that is definitely <laughs> um, leaning into the computational metaphors shall we say
2: yes definitely um, definitely okay just wanted to get that out of the way um roughly where do you guys situate language uh, among our cognitive abilities is is the la- is language the pinnacle of our cognition uh, as individuals we can get into social aspects of it later but just as a as a cognitive entity where where is language maybe we can start with you Ev.
0: sure um well the thing to keep in mind is that um i'm a cognitive scientist and um, i use neuroscience tools to study cognitive science so my perspective is tainted by the knowledge i have from that domain and so um well or the positive version of that (laughs) um and um uh In my work, uh, I've been very interested in the relationship between uh, language and uh, thought or complex reasoning abilities. And my initial prior was that language is at the very core of those abilities. And I was very Mm. sympathetic to that kind of a view. But it turns out that empirically, the way that humans are built, um, language rather reflects some of the complexities that we have in our thoughts rather than creating them. So in a sense, um, I would take the evidence to date as suggesting that language language is just kind of one tool in our cognitive toolkit, um, and a lot of complex thought can happen uh, without access to language.
2: Emily, do you agree with that?
1: Um, Well, so I want to say, you know, on things cognitive science and neuroscience, I definitely defer to Ev. My, My work is in linguistics and computational linguistics, and so I have... No basis on which to compare language to other cognitive abilities. Um, I think that what I can say as a linguist is that language is an interface that allows us to work together with other people and also to work with ourselves across time. And my guess is that that will have lots of really interesting cognitive implications. But that's not really answering the question of how does it fit into some hierarchy of cognitive abilities, um, because I don't have an answer to that question.
2: But but can't you do some armchair philosophy, which is where we got us to the place... um, pre-ev where we where we sort of assume <laughs> that language is the pinnacle and and according to your prior as well i mean is that an area ev where philosophy has led us astray perhaps
0: i think so <laughs> i think philosophy has led the field astray many many times and i think it's because relying on a, a, an introspection is dangerous we have intuitions and intuitions can be helpful for generating hypotheses, but ultimately you can't build stories on that it's just a starting point. Um, and because some of the tools for studying the relationship among different cognitive abilities just haven't been around, um, you know, well, different tools became available at different times, but uh, without those tools, we just couldn't empirically ask these questions. And because, um, I think because some people have this intuition that they talk to themselves when they think, um, I think that has led to this whole notion of language as being kind of the core essence of thought and the inability to think without language being there. And that just seems to be empirically, just doesn't seem to be true.
2: What about the people who vocally talk to themselves all the time? Who vocalize their their thoughts, right? And can't seem to think without doing so.
0: That's my daughter and my husband. Well, it depends on what you mean by not able to do to think without Seemingly. doing. So that's again an empirical question. Seemingly right. Um, I think um, <laughs> I think some of that has to do with um, humans being highly social. Although um, I think some some people like that even do it when they're alone. Um, again, I'm not saying that language can't be helpful in uh, structuring certain thoughts or maybe extending the kind of window over which we operate in our thought mental space um but uh like i said the evidence that we have from both brain imaging and individuals with severe language problems suggest that a lot of stuff can happen very complex reasoning can happen without relying on linguistic representations so i think and there's interesting story oh go ahead go ahead
1: Amanda. i'm detecting in your questions um some implicit hierarchy of kinds of thought and kinds of reasoning. Mm. So when you say people who can't think without speaking,
2: um,
1: (laughs) that suggests that there's certain kinds of, of the more general thing that we call thinking that you consider sort of real thinking and other stuff that isn't. And then a value proposition where some of it is the the stuff that, that we tend to do through language. Um, So I'm thinking about the experience of when I go to write something and I'm, you know, out for a walk and I have a really great idea and then I sit down to write it and it feels like, Oh, I actually had sort of, the first, second, and sixth parts of this, yeah. and the stuff in between, I really have to sit down and work out. And as, as Ev says, if I set it down in language and sort of fix it there, then I can focus on those other connections in between, and that can extend what I want to do. Um, but I would not want to call that kind of work real thinking to the exclusion of other
2: things. I mean, do you think that people conflate thinking with language and... and- Just that they're the same thing. You know, there's the language of thought uh, hypothesis of of our cognition, etc. I mean, do you think that's one of the mistakes that people make is just conflating our thoughts with language? So
1: I have a story for you from um, when I was in college. My mom came to visit once and I was really proud to show her what I was doing. And I brought her along to a syntax class I was taking. And my mom's a poet and a personal essayist and a teacher of creative writing. So she's really a language person, but in a different way. And she walked out of that class terrified because <laughs> she said, you are using language to study language. You're going to go crazy. Oh. Right? Um, and I think that you know we're fine, right? Syntacticians actually do manage to hold it together. It's okay. Um, but I do think that there's a danger that because so much of this discourse is done in language and especially in, in written language, that we conflate that with the thing that we're studying and sort of analogously... Hmm. Um, there's this, all this stuff going on, which maybe we'll get into later in, in the hour about whether or not language models are sentient.
2: Um, oh, and uh, <laughs> do um, we have to? Okay. I hope not. Yeah, but right. the, the
1: thing that I wanted to bring out of that is, um, people who are taken in by the language models seem to project an inner life onto the language model. Um, and some of that discourse is around, well, see, it's doing language. So therefore it must have an inner life. And my reaction to that is, language is one of the key ways in which we become aware of the inner lives of other people, but that doesn't mean that the language itself is the inner life.
0: That's exactly right. I completely agree with this. I think it's not a reasonable, you know, we're Bayesian reasoning beings, right? And it's not crazy to think that something that produces coherent, well-formed language has thoughts, because in most of our experiences, that's the case. But of course, it's a fallacy. Of course, we've learned that you can learn a lot of rich statistical patterns of how words go together, including pretty sophisticated aspects of syntax that some syntacticians had argued, you just can't learn from experience, no matter how much experience you have. But that does not imply that there is complex thought there. I mean, one way to um, also think about is, for example, humans vary a lot in their reasoning capacities. And oftentimes you have people who speak very eloquently, or fluid, fluidly, and fluently, but it doesn't necessarily mean that <laughs> there's a lot of uh, kind of rich, <laughs> complex thought behind. We've seen it in politics a lot uh, in the last bunch of years. Um,
2: do, you, do you guys? Uh, I meant to ask you this up front, and this is a total aside, so I apologize. Do you enjoy courting controversy and getting uh, pushback? Because one thing that you kind of share is so. So Ev has spent a lot of time. Um, Collecting evidence for and arguing uh, against the idea that language is necessary for complex thought. Um, So this goes, you know, against a lot of uh, intuitions and background philosophy. And of course, Emily, you're writing these critical papers on language models um, ethically, and you know, the fact that they don't understand what they're producing. So I assume that you guys both get a lot of pushback. Is is that enjoyable to you? Uh,
1: (laughs) Not particularly. (laughs) I'm not in it for the pushback, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, same. Um, I'm just doing my thing. Like, I, I want to figure out how things work. Like, I'm an empiricist, and so I'm just trying to understand how the system works. And I'm happy to argue with people, but I think, you know, a lot of the pushback comes uh, is, you know, it's not uh, incidental that we're females. Like, oh. that has... Um, Oh yeah. Really? Yeah, you seem surprised. Yes. <sighs>
2: I just don't I yes. don't think I want ex- to believe that. But yeah, okay. Oh,
0: well, you may want to believe I I want to believe all sorts of good things too, but you know, like my most salient kind of awareness of these differences came from traveling uh back when i was like a postdoc or young faculty with uh, my husband who is also a language researcher and we would often go and give talks together you know sequentially um because if we're both there people would want to hear different anyway and he was just amazed at how different the tone is of people who talk to me Mm. uh compared to the way that they talk to him and i just kind of hadn't really given it much thought before of course i'm also raised by a female academic nancy chemistry and she was always warning me about this Mm -hmm. and uh yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, expectation of, you know, like we owe people something to explain to them every little thing without them bothering to even read the papers. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> we don't. <laughs> yeah.
1: No. Yeah. And, you know, I sometimes look wistfully at the other kind of work that I do and wish I had more time for it. So, you know, multilingual grammar engineering and computational semantics. um, and I find myself putting more and more time into this discourse around um, what is it that language models can do um, because I see the hype and the overclaims as harmful. Hmm. Um, and some folks are concerned with sort of the harm to the field of AI. And I frankly couldn't care less. Like AI is not my problem. I'm not trying to build better AI if I think computer science as a whole and AI in particular is vastly overfunded right now. Um, to the mm. detriment of the science in that area and to the detriment of the science in surrounding fields. Um, but I see, I see harms to people, right? Um, in terms of when we uh, believe false things about what these systems are doing, then we end up putting too much faith and too much autonomy into automated systems. And so, um, Not doing it for the pushback, but I sort of feel like this is a a place where my knowledge and expertise in linguistics allows me to do some good in the world, and so that's my motivation.
2: So um, we could really go off the rails here ethically, and and it's not an ethics podcast, (laughs) but um, maybe let's get back to what I was going to ask about regarding the meaning and and our as humans that we sort of grasp for meaning and anthropomorphize and uh, want to think that we are communicating with something sentient, something, you know, that is producing meaning. And is that because we, so th- there's this uh, kind of a pr- approach, the computer metaphor of the brain, right, is that we get input uh, signals, we process that input, and then we produce actions. And then th- there's this alternative viewpoint that really we're producing actions primarily uh, to receive different inputs, right? So it's, instead of a perception to action uh, notion, it's an action to perception uh, notion. And I'm wondering if, if it's the same, if we buy into the action to perception notion, I'm wondering if, if our grasping for meaning in other humans, uh, our cats and dogs, large language models, if, if that is the same sort of thing where we're so uh, you're, we yearn for meaning so much and we build meaning out of uh, things so much, if that is sort of an analog of the taking action aspect. Does that make sense?
0: I'm just saying, like we're like actively filling in the gaps when there are real gaps. I mean, we certainly are very good at filling in cognitively, right? Like we have a rich understanding of the world, and if something is not there, we can easily fill it in by assigning mental states and so on. And again, because it's because I think the a big fallacy is uh, that we often can and do, when in fact it's necessary to assign mental states to. Uh, entities that produce coherent language, which is other humans, and to understand what somebody is saying to us, it's really critical to think about their intentions and the whole context in which they're saying something. But um, it, it seems, and it seems really hard to, for people to get that you can just learn the regularities of language and produce language, um, and not have all of the stuff that usually comes along with language as part of the human brain. Now, I think there is kind of an interesting flip side of that, which is how much of this richness can you infer from patterns in language? Because, of course, language reflects this generative process of, you know, um, thinking. And we talk about things we think about and feel and so on. Um, and that's an interesting question. Different fields have different kind of takes and approaches to thinking about this. There is obviously a lot of information about the world that's reflected in language. But um, as um, a lot of work uh, suggests, some of that knowledge seems quite brittle, not always generalizable in the same ways as what humans have. And presumably it's because, um, you know, along with the linguistic regularities, humans get access to the physical world. Um, They interact with um, other entities using that same communication code, as well as with the objects and engage in the events. And so it's a richer um, notion of meaning that they get. But, but I think you can get quite a lot from just the way that words um, go together. Hmm. Like that definitely has a lot of structure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think to go back to your question of uh, is our looking for meaning analogous to taking an action so that we get a percept back? Um, so this is, I, I feel out of my depth. Like, I, again, I want to defer to everyone's questions of like, what's going no, on? No, come on, movement. you
2: have to. You have to. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> well, um, so my, my, my sense is that, you know, looking at language and how it's used so linguistic pragmatics and also what we know from the child language acquisition literature um we are uh very very good at taking in linguistic clues together with everything else we have Mm -hmm. and then using that to make inferences about the communicative intent of the person who uttered the thing um and we are we do it so quickly and so automatically um and including all these processes of for example ambiguity resolution so computers are very, very good at finding multiple different syntactic analyses of a string if you're actually like running a parser that's got a grammar in it. Um, my favorite example is have that report on my desk by Friday. Seems like a completely straightforward, unambiguous thing. Any any scenario that you can imagine for that sentence, it's, you know, no one's going to say, but wait, what did, what did she mean? 32 different parses for that, given a reasonable grammar of English, <laughs> right? Um, because have could be cause to be, right? Or it could be go ahead and take right? Um, the report could be about the desk, or it could be physically on the desk. Mm-hmm. Um, by Friday could refer to a time, or it could refer to the author of the report. And then all those things can combine together in different ways so that you get 32 different readings. But none of that, like, it's just, it goes right past us, because we are using so much information, um, sort of general world knowledge, cultural knowledge, what we know about the person who said the thing. And uh, linguists sometimes get tripped up when we are asking speakers for grammaticality judgments, because we forget how much of that world building goes into creating that judgment. And so you'll get people saying, oh, no, 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 nobody would ever say that, um, because we haven't sort of given the time to say, okay, no, in this kind of a situation where these things are going on, and you need to emphasize that, now is it a natural thing to say? Um, And we sort of work with this false assumption of a null context, which just never exists. So all that to say that, our interpretation of language is very fast and very reflexive. Um, and we have the, the sensation or the intuition that we are getting all that information out of the language when, in fact, what we're doing is we are pairing a whole bunch of information with the language to make some inferences.
2: Well, I'm tempted to just go down the road of, the, um, of Ev's work comparing um, large language models with uh, the predictive activity of that with our, our brains. But maybe before that, what what does that say about large language models? Are they not producing language the way we think of language because d- do we need a different definition of what they're doing or a different word for what they're doing than language?
1: So I think we often, the discourse often does get tripped up um, because language could be the set of forms or it could be the four meaning pairing or it could be the linguistic system that puts those things together. Um, and so I've I've started talking about large language models as text synthesizing machines. Okay. Um, which still isn't great because a text, especially if you're talking about like, you know, humanistic scholarship, a text also is something that's got a lot of meaning in it. But the, um, the point is that the, what the large language models are doing is coming out with strings and those strings are conditioned on very carefully modeled understandings. I don't want to use that word very hmm. carefully constructed models of the patterns of the strings. Um, and, Embedded in those models is a lot of information about which strings are like each other and which ones tend to co-occur, and and um, constraints uh, that look like syntax and constraints that look like lexical semantics. Um, but none of it reflects any communicative intent, nor any um, connection to the world outside the strings. Um, so no grounding, no social understanding, and so on.
2: And yet one of the things that ev has shown w- and with her group is that when you compare the activity of large language models with that of brains uh there seems to be this next word prediction that's happening in our brains as well as as it does in the large language models and this is kind of in the tradition now of the visual system in our brains uh, have been compared to the um like convolutional neural networks and we've talked a lot about that on the podcast but ev how do you, what what does that mean uh, are we just missing are we just grasping that one tiny aspect of language, next word prediction? Uh, and And so we need to find the other aspects, the grounding, the context. Uh, what What does it mean?
0: Yes, that's, that's a great question. So, yes, that's exactly, I think, how I think about it, except I don't think that prediction is a tiny part. <laughs> so um, we have a set of uh, um, regions in our brain that respond very selectively to language. And um, my group and other groups have previously shown that um, these uh, responses are sensitive to how predictable upcoming words are. So there is extra cost if words are unexpected. And that has been shown behaviorally as well in many different paradigms. So um, uh, so there's a system. And um, uh, as you pointed out, it indeed seems to be the case that if you take representations from modern language models, um, like the transformer architecture models, uh, and you build a model, a linear mapping model between those representations and the neural representations extracted from that system, this language selective system in the human brain, uh, there is a good relationship. You can learn a relationship so that you can then predict respond- neural responses to some unseen stimuli. And I think it's it's really intriguing. Um, and um, I, it was very surprising to me how well that worked. But it also um, kind of, in my kind of thinking about language and cognition, it came around the time where all of this stuff about separability of language and complex reasoning was becoming clearer and clearer. Um, and then, if you think about it through that lens, then perhaps it's not so surprising that we have this system that is a system that has some, that has learned some um, mappings between forms and some rough approximation of meaning that could then be passed down to systems that actually do um, complex reasoning on those representations be social reasoning or abstract reasoning, like in logic and math and, uh, whatever else. And so, um, so yeah, I think looking at, um, uh, neural responses in this language system is, um, capturing this one aspect of, um, uh, linguistic regularities, which, of course, but the reason that I don't think it's a tiny part of language is, of course, to, to succeed at predicting the next word, you have to learn to pay attention to all sorts of stuff in the signal, right? To how particular words go together, to some more abstract syntactic patterns. And learning all that as a kid is a non-trivial task. Learning that as a model is a non-trivial task. But, and of course, you know, models and kids learn differently, presumably. And I think there's a lot of interesting work to do to try to figure out how those differences may impact resulting representations, and so on. But that said, it seems like we have this machine in our brain that does that, um, stores all of these knowledge representations that we acquire over our lifetime, and then uses them to predict um, upcoming, um, like how linguistic signals unfold, which is presumably we do because it facilitates, it basically spreads workload over time better. So we don't have to work as hard when things actually happen.
2: Emily, how did, does that sit well with you? That a, a huge part of our language faculty is next word prediction, or just predicting upcoming words.
1: Uh, so, I, I um, first of all, again, you know, defer to the empirical work, right? So, so you know, my work on language looks at the level of you know what can we say about the system? How can we model grammaticality judgments? And I like to think that. That kind of work digging into syntax can then help inform the kind of studies, um, that, that Ev and her team and other researchers are doing. Um, so, but in, in terms of, you know, what are we finding that the brain is doing? It doesn't matter what I want, right? (laughs) It matters, you know, is, is there good Mm -hmm. empirical work going on? Um, but also I, I think that there's a difference between saying, yes, humans have, um, you know, this facility where we predict what's coming next. And, and, you know, I, I appreciate the explanation of, um, that allows us to smooth out the workload, um, by sort of trying to do some of that computation ahead of time, it sounds like, um, that is very different to saying, and so therefore a system trained with the task of doing next word prediction, um, is getting at the heart of language, right, is, is getting, and, and therefore, you know, understands what things mean, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, it's interesting, um, And, um, I think it's a, it's an interesting way to use the large language models, although with the huge caveat that the, um, nature and scale of the training data is so different, um, Mm. between, you Mm -hmm. know, what something like, you know, even Bert is exposed to and, and what a human child is exposed to. Um, so like that, the analogy there, I think breaks down a little bit. Um, but using the language models to sort of model that aspect of what humans do with language is interesting for sure. Um, and I noticed as Ev was talking that she was being very careful to reserve the word neural for things happening in actual brains. So while we're talking about can we have a different word, please? Oh, yeah. um, it would be nice to reserve neural for things that are actually neural rather than metaphorically neural.
2: That 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 idea has flown. It's I I think that there's no going back. Is there? Is there Ev? There's no going back, right? <laughs>
0: I don't know. I don't crazy. know. I mean, I, like, as long as people <laughs> define their terms. Yeah, I think terminology is very hard to change. I've fought some of those battles and I usually tend to give up eventually. I'll just keep using them the way that they make sense to me and um, ask that other people define what they're talking about. But yeah. Um okay. But I think, like, I mean, one other thing to say about this, potentially, like, at least some similarity between the representations and the models and the human neural responses, is that it's for the first time, uh, and like, I, I always say this, I did not think this would happen in our lifetime. It's for the first time that I think we can go beyond kind of these verbal descriptive hypotheses about how things happen, and maybe have like an actual implemented model of at least some aspects of how language might work. It's not, of course, finding a similarity between two sets of representations doesn't mean that they are doing things in the same way, but it's a window, right? It could allow you then to try to manipulate the model architectures, the training objectives, the training the learning algorithms, and try to see which of these things affect how well those representations, resulting representations can capture human neural responses. And I think we can learn a lot through that kind of careful experimentation on the models now, Um, just because as and of itself, the fact that some big set of parameters provide some fit to human neural data, like that's not the end point. Again, I see this like as a potential window to actually get beyond saying like, oh, this bit of the brain does syntax or whatever uh, the field has been doing for the last few decades.
2: Emily was mentioning um, that the language models learn differently. They learn from different data and presumably different than humans learn. Does it matter how we learn language? So, Ev, I know that you're multilingual from a young age, right?
0: I was multilingual before I came to the U.S. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of bilingual. I guess Russian is my native language, yeah. Yeah. But I used to speak a few others that I here's another
2: aside before we continue because i uh, i want to get this right is it true Ev, that fmri studies have shown that people who learn um, multiple languages from a young age uh, when you when they're processing and producing those different languages the representations are more clustered and overlapping than people who learn language at a later age where uh their native language is like there's this kind of a central cluster and then the uh l- newly learned languages uh are more active kind of outside that cluster
0: um we don't see that oh. we basically it seems like once you have um good proficiency in a language it all loads on the same set of frontal temporal regions now of course different language have to be segregated within that system otherwise we'll be confused all the time right so at some fine-grained level of multivariate responses you can discriminate you know french from english or whatever when you're producing it or understanding it but if you achieve good proficiency uh, in a language it will all be in that same system for you even if you learn it later in life
2: so thinking about how to okay the difference between language and complex thoughts and there's an interface right so we whatever language you're using um, needs to be passed on to your working memory system or your reasoning abilities and vice versa to produce the language. Is FMRI going to um, allow us to see that, uh, that interface, that exchange, because it seems like that interface is perhaps one of the more important things to understand how we utilize language.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, so so like one first a clarification so like when you say there's like working memory computations that you need to hold some chunks of language as you're producing whatever all of that um so okay one step back uh, people used to think that we have a set of language brain areas that do some aspects of language and then we have some perhaps central hubs like for example working memory into like uh, working memory integration information integration hub prediction hub and then different domains implemented in different parts of the brain all draw on these centralized hubs now it doesn't seem anymore like that's how things work so the kinds of computations that uh, support language processing which includes prediction but also things like integration as many theories of syntactic complexity have postulated for many years all the working memory based stories it's kind of the, opposite, the flip side of prediction, right? So there's a cost in, um, thinking of what might come next, but then there is also a cost in integrating elements into the, um, representation you're building anyway, but all of these representations seem to be implemented focally within this, uh, language specialized system. Um, and I think the same is likely true for other domains like music and, uh, things like that. Um, but whether we can study the interface between language and actual kind of thinking and reasoning capacities. I am dying to understand how that works. I think that's the most intriguing thing to um, uh, tackle next. And we're trying to do some of this, like what are the representations that the language system passes down to these areas that then, for example, reason about, you know, social relationships among people or physical constraints in the world or whatever other, you know, abstract logical kind of connections uh, between things. Um, And we don't have great tools. For studying those kinds of questions, um, for different tools that are available have, uh, uh, limitations, but, um, I think we're trying to figure out if we can get really clever with tools like fMRI, which is you kind of need whole brain coverage because you want to be recording from multiple systems at once. And most intracranial recordings, which you can do in humans, have the limit of very, very sparsely sampling the brain. And it's very rare that you would have recordings from the language system and from some downstream, for example, abstract Uh, reasoning um, uh, set of areas. And so we're trying to see how far we can push fMRI to get at this and I don't know yet. Um, I feel like in the next decade we'll have a better sense.
2: Well, I know one of the things uh, Ev, that you advocate for is studying animal communication as a proxy for studying language in humans. Um, And Emily, I don't know how familiar you are with lots of animal cognition and communication but I guess the question would be can we really do that? Uh, I thought language was something special about humans and that other animals, be they non-human primates down to, you know, organisms like bacteria can communicate, but not at the, but there's a clear distinction between language and other animal communication. Uh, is language specific to humans and, you know, is it a viable, do you think Emily, it's a viable option to study communication in non-human animals to understand something about human language?
1: So I think if we're gonna if we're gonna go to communication in non human animals, we are adding a layer of complexity, but also giving ourselves some distance that might be helpful. So um, if you look at um, say you know dolphins or whales, where we don't really know what's going on, there seems to be some interesting complexity there. They certainly um, you know uh, whales. So I'm thinking here in, in Washington State, we have the dozen resident orcas who are severely endangered, and every year there's news reports about you know, the new births in J-pod and K-pod and, and um, it's, you know, there's a specific set of individuals and they are in, in specific groups. And so I think that, um, you know, someone studying that may well have evidence that there's social structure and communication. And so that gives us some distance. Of course, there's the extra distance of environmental differences. It's like difficult to study marine mammals because we don't share their environment. Um, but we also then are working with something where we don't know the code right? We don't really know um, what's in, in their communication system. And so that's both sort of a, a further um, difficulty and some possibly beneficial distance that might help depending on what kind of question you're looking at. As to the question of whether language is special to humans, um, there's some pretty foundational work by Charles Hockett looking at design features of language to say, what does something have to be before we call it a language? Um, and whenever you're doing that kind of definitional work, I think it's worth keeping an eye on why you're doing the definitional work. So if we're saying this is what linguistic studies, linguistic studies languages. So things that have these properties are languages and they are in scope. That's just descriptive. If you're saying humans are better than animals because we have language or humans are more (laughs) sophisticated or more something, then it's a more value laden, different kind of a question. Um, so I think that it's, it's worthwhile to define our terms, as we were saying before, and talk about, you know, what, what is this thing that we're calling language, what are the properties that we care about and why do we care about them? And if we're looking at it from a neuroscience perspective, um, it could be well, we care about how this system works in a human brain. And if we want to look to animal models, then we need to establish that it is analogous enough. And so that's what we're creating the properties.
2: Are you on board yeah, with that? Just maybe like to add. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think largely very much so. I mean, I, I think one important um, thing that I always say is that you know, there's a lot of um, uh, continuity in biology. And I just oppose about people making categorical transitions when there's no evidence for such transitions. So I would be very surprised if our system is in some uh, qualitative way different. Um, and I think that um, uh, desire to postulate a qualitative difference comes from historically the focus on syntax, uh, which is a big component of language, but words are also important. And humans, unlike many other animals, can store a vast number of communicative signals. And I think that's not to be underestimated. I think that's um, similarly important. Once you start thinking about word meanings and the complexity of communicative signals, then it becomes much more likely to be a continuum as opposed to some fundamental new circuit that we have evolved or some new brain region, some new way to process information. Um, For which, you know, that may well be true, but so far um, evidence for homologies is uh, overwhelming and evidence for, like, fundamentally new kinds of computations that human brains can do that other animals can do is quite sparse. But there's a lot of exciting work, both in terms of, like, understanding the actual biology of human neurons compared to other neurons, uh, and there's some interesting differences. So um, I'm excited about the kinds of things we can learn about those potential differences um, in the coming
2: years. So, so, you don't see a qualitative difference between. Okay, so someone like Terry, Terrence Deacon, um, would argue that there's a qualitative difference between the symbol like structures that humans use for language and, and that constitutes language versus what he would call indexical and other kinds of referential signals that are used in the animal uh, kingdom. Whether or not there's different neural architecture underlying it, uh, you don't buy that it, it, there's not a qualitative difference between the ability to use symbols that essentially we're a symbolic species and can pass these things down I can write the word tangerine and you can understand it in four years right and that it's somehow detached from the immediacy of the environment um, so you don't buy that there's a qualitative well, difference I mean-
0: <laughs> Qualitative differences call for very strong evidence. And there is a very, very large field of animal communication that has shown that many features of human communication are also present. And yes, they don't have writing systems, okay. <laughs> so it's harder to pass things down across many generations. But um, animals communicate about things that are not... If you look at different species, you find evidence of communication about things that are not here and now necessarily. Um, and um, again, like one thing... Um, that I think is important that often gets kind of all lumped together is yes, humans are smarter and humans have language. Hmm. It doesn't mean that humans are smarter because they have language. And in both of these things, kind of the communication system we have and the thinking capacity we have, there may well be continuity as opposed to some fundamentally kind of different processes happening. But I think understanding in which ways we're smarter, setting language aside can also be a very fruitful thing to try to crystallize some of these differences without bringing language into the um, bucket which sometimes just leads to muddled reasoning because it's very hard for us to think about thought without using language and then it just all gets lumped together and leads to like a lot of <laughs> mess in literature
2: okay guys so let's talk about large language models a little bit more um what i what i okay so emily this is not a knock against linguistics or anything but one question is do we understand language well enough to build you know useful large language models do we need to understand language and I, I know a lot of what you do is apply your linguistic knowledge to kind of critically evaluate large language models but do do we understand language enough and do we need to understand it enough uh,
1: so so yes i think um that we do need to understand language in order to build good language technology um it's not clear to me that large language models are something that the world needs at all. Certainly not larger and larger ones. Um, that's not a um, like phenomenon in the world that you know a mountain that we climbed because it was there kind of a thing. Right? We we created the mountain as we were climbing it, and um, without I think a whole lot of of purpose in mind, aside from some very fuzzy thinking about AGI, which I think is is way off the rails um, in terms of. Building good language technology, yes, I mean, we definitely need to um, look into what we know about language, and the more we know about language, the better we can build the language technology. And, and this includes things like if we want to build language technology that works well across different languages, then looking into linguistic typology, which is the study of how languages are similar and different, can help us do that better. Um, if we want to build language technology that is well-situated within its deployment context and not... Um, discriminating against people because they speak differently or reproducing the discrimination that's in language, then um, sociolinguistics is a really rich and useful um, starting point, right? And I'm not saying that typology or sociolinguistics are, you know, finished areas of study. Is there anything that's a finished area of study? I think the the areas of study that we've abandoned are all things where it turned out to be, you know, pseudoscience. Um, and anything that, that had something real at its core, there's always more to do, right? Mm. So yes, we could always learn more about language. Um, but what we are not as a field doing in NLP is getting the full advantage of what is known from linguistics. Um, and there's, it's a little bit frustrating to me sometimes people will write off linguistics because they took one formal syntax class. And by formal, I mean formalist, I mean like minimalist program and said, Oh, this isn't useful. And then decided that that was all of linguistics. Um, and that's partially on linguistics because, um, Within the field, especially in the US, there's this culture of sort of putting syntax, especially that kind of syntax on the top of the heap, and sort of putting that forward as the pinnacle of linguistics. And so if we do that, and people from the outside come and look at what we've done and go, well, not useful, and miss all of the other stuff, um, we could be doing better on the linguistic side. Um, but I also, you know, will continue telling the language technology people to please keep paying attention to what you can get out
2: of linguistics. And, and do they? Is there, is there a lot of uh, hesitancy to listen to linguists?
1: yes. Um, And I think that hesitancy comes from a couple of places. So one is sometimes people do go and they encounter something that is esoteric and not helpful. Um, And I've tried to work against that by you know writing a couple of books saying, here's 100 quick vignettes about the first one was morphology and syntax and the second one was semantics and and pragmatics. Um, And those came um, initially out of frustration um, as a reviewer for NLP conferences um, around 2010, 2011, going, my God, these people don't know the first thing about how language works, right? Um, So, okay, well, it's not reasonable to ask people to go do a whole second degree. So what can I do? Well, here's 100 things about how language works. And then I did 100 more. Um, But also, I think that there's something cultural in computer science, which is to say, um, especially machine learning, the whole point is to build the system that learned the things so you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And that leads to a direct devaluing of domain knowledge. And linguistics is one important domain for domain knowledge for NLP um, that gets devalued and ignored and um, so I have put a lot of effort into trying to counteract that.
2: Ev, what do you uh, what do you think language models need? What What would you want to see in besides scaling up? Uh, I, I mean, I know it's a problem modeling. Um, <laughs> I don't
0: know. <laughs> I never said they need to be scaled up. No, 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 no I don't I think I'm that's necessarily a <laughs> good strategy. But yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I mean that would be the um, that's sort of the default program, yeah. right? Is to scale up. But but even you know, yeah. looking at um, comparing our visual activity to convolutional neural networks. Mm-hmm. The larger ones don't perform as well because they're not mapped on as well to the structure of our brain so yeah. i'm i'm just saying that you know scaling up is not good for neuroscience like it's not going to buy you anything uh, but is it you know is yeah. there something that that would you think emily could help I think you So
0: i mean <laughs> i i think um we have a good system a good general intelligence system that still a lot remains to be understood about which is the primate brain. And, uh, um, I think, um, the when people started seeing some of the successes of the language models, again, conflating all sorts of being able to capture linguistic regularities versus abstract generalizable world knowledge. Um, then, well, it it also depends on the goals, right? Like if you want to build a system that can solve problems for you, um, then sure, maybe scaling it up and seeing how far you can push it is is a reasonable thing to do. Although, of course, it's not environmentally responsible and comes with a lot of you know its, of its own issues. But, um, but if you want to build a system um, that can think, then um, it just seems a little bit misguided, potentially, to just try to think that language will just give you that. And again, I think the idea that it can comes from the fact that a lot of people think that language is what made us smart. Um, and we have a very nice... Uh, somewhat modular. And I'm not bringing any of like Fedorian baggage where nothing like some things are encapsulated or anything like that. But it does seem there's division of labor in our brain. And presumably it's because it's metabolically and computationally efficient to build a system like that. And so perhaps instead of trying to make the language models larger and larger and train them on more and more data, you can take existing models, which actually do language really quite well, (laughs) in many ways, they capture many regularities really pretty well. Um, And you can use linguistic tools, like Emily was saying, to probe the knowledge reputation, see if the way they represent language is similar to how humans represent linguistic regularities. But I think we have a working decent language module-ish. And then we can try to see, okay, how would we build a system that reasons about different aspects of the world? How build a system that does math, build a system that can you know, interact with computers using like computer code, a system that um, implements social reasoning, right? So this is kind of going to uh, this notion of having a bunch of distinct capacities. Some of them are relevant to particular domains. Some of them are abstract reasoning capacities, like the kinds of things that um, are linked to fluid intelligence, just abstract reasoning, novel problem solving, and so on. And then maybe try to combine those different solutions together uh, and try to build interfaces and um, maybe that's a better way to try to build a general intelligence system, uh, and maybe it can be much more computationally efficient than uh, trying to get uh, some of this. Again, like I said, some of this, you may be able to get through language, but it's just not necessarily the best way to design a system. I think, given what we know from human brains. Right.
1: So I think we've maybe found a point of disagreement finally, F, which is um, yes. I don't I don't think the language models are <laughs> a nice language module in a system oh. like that because I think that they. They capture some things about language, but they don't capture enough. Um, and so that's one point of disagreement. And the other point, maybe this isn't um, disagreement with you, but disagreement with others that you were sort of uh, modeling mm-hmm. as you were speaking, um, is I don't see the value of building a general intelligence. I think that we would um, be much better served by building specific tools to help people do things. And um, there are lots of places where building language processing tools could be extremely useful, um, some of my favorite examples are, um, matching patients to clinical trials, um, helping comb through case law to find precedent. Um, automatic transcription is wildly, you know, useful. Likewise, machine translation. Um, so thinking about it as here are tools rather than running away with, um, okay, now we've got a language thingy. Let's build a general intelligence around that and then have it be a general purpose tool. I think we're going to have a real hard time creating something that's fit for purpose if we go that direction. Um, No, that's a
0: great point. Um, Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, again, like I don't particularly, I'm not an engineer. I don't need to build tools. Like I see how some tools can be useful, but for me, building something like a generalized intelligence system is another tool for probing the human brain. Like if we can build something taking inspiration from the human brain, then maybe we can ask questions that we just can't ask about how human brains work because we lack the tools. But if we have a model that captures something about human neural responses, then we can try to understand, for example, how the language system passes information down to say, the abstract um, logical reasoning engine or social engine.
1: Yeah, and, and I have no objections to, to building scientific models um, but most of the people who are talking about building these things are not are not doing it with that kind of a
0: motivation. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, we at MIT do. <laughs> we not, not only at MIT, of course, but a lot of people who I interact with are, of course, interested in fundamentally this interaction between the fields with a big goal of understanding how humans work.
1: Yeah. I want to live in your but world. That's true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Come on over. Yeah, right. <laughs> but...
2: Yeah. Are um, going going maybe the, the other direction? Um, instead of using language models uh, as proxies, you know, for brain activity, are large language models teaching us anything about language? So linguistics can inform large language models, but are, are we getting anything in return? Whether it's you know lim- our limitations or um, what we're particularly good out good at, that they're not are we learning anything about our own cognition through these language models?
0: I'd be very curious to hear what Emily thinks yeah. about that. <laughs> um,
1: so I think there are linguistic questions around, and, and, and Ev um, mentioned this earlier, around what can be learned from... Um, the phrase you used, Ev, was experience. Um, and there, there are linguists who want to posit um, innate knowledge of language and posited on the basis of saying, see, people know these patterns that they can't possibly have learned just from observing the data. Um, and I guess there's a couple things I want to say about that. The first is that um, our experience with language is very, very different from um, the input that a language model is getting about language. Because our, our experience with language is always embedded in, you know, a physical and social experience. And even if part of what we're doing is learning to predict the next word um, it's not that we're just sitting there receiving strings of words, right, which is roughly what the, the language model gets to do. Um, so that's that's sort of one direction. The It is interesting, I think, to say, hey, look, these patterns of grammaticality that um, you were using to posit um, innate knowledge of language actually are calculable just from data if you have enough data. Um, and then um, I suppose if you want to get into the nitty gritty of that argument, it becomes okay. Well, what's an appropriate amount of data? Like, how much do you need before you say this is um, something that that a child learning a language could reasonably have been expected to be exposed to? Um, so, I think that there's there's questions in that direction that are interesting. Um, I mean, I'm certainly for using computational models to do linguistics. Like, that's what I'm doing with grammar engineering. It's a different approach. It's basically saying let's actually push the rule based idea. Um, but instead of having those rules be pen and paper, let's actually write them down on a computer so we can then test them over large data sets and find the phenomena that our rules don't yet account for. And that allows us to move on to the next thing and the next thing. Um, and sort of in that same spirit, I could imagine using a large language model. Um, I mean, I wouldn't build it for this purpose, um, but given that they exist already and it doesn't, you know, take very much more electricity to, to run them a little bit or to probe them, um, it could be interesting to say, okay, you know, what are the things that um, can be picked up in this paradigm versus can't? Um, and so I'm thinking of the work of people like Alison Edinger and Ellie Pavlik, who do really interesting work on sort of probing and trying to understand what kinds of things can be picked up from this observation of lots and lots of linguistic form um, versus what seems to require more than that. And so I think that there is there's interesting studies that can be done. And I'm glad that people are getting some use out of them that way. Um, but like I said, I wouldn't have gone to build a large language model just for that purpose. I think you can probably get at those questions other ways, too.
2: Do we need... Uh, so, Emily, you've famously... You know, we're not going to go down the list of famous papers that you've written. Um, but, but thinking about the climbing towards NLU um, on meaning, form, and understanding in the age of data, where you argue that large language models don't understand um, language, don't understand the meaning of what they're saying. Uh, is meaning required? for a language and I guess a, a second question, which is maybe orthogonal, but does it does it matter how we learn language?
1: Okay, and I'm glad you came back to that question because you, you asked it before and then we didn't get to it. So is meaning required for language? Um, I think, yes, the, the, the operational definition of language that I work with, and I'd be interested to hear if, if this fits in Ev's um, linguistic or language related work as well, um, is that languages are symbolic systems Um, They are systems that allow us to pair form a meaning in this open-ended way, sort of recombining large but discrete sets of um, uh, basic symbols into larger symbols. And also from the point of view of, of why we might build language technology is it's about communication, right? And communication isn't just passing strings back and forth. It's about using the strings as clues that allow the um, the interlocutor to reconstruct communicative intent or a good hypothesis about communicative intent. Um, and so that's that's where I see meaning being really key to language. Now, does it matter if we learn it the same or learn it differently? Um, so who are we, right? So um, I think there's probably really interesting questions about what's the range of human variability in how languages are learned? Um, how does that interact with cultural practices um about how uh, children are spoken to how does that interact with modality and uh you know always looking at that with a sort of expansive sense of normal and not um there's better or worse ways of doing it that's sort of one of the one of the pitfalls of that kind of research is it's often the um the questions can be asked descriptive descriptively and inclusively or they can be asked um in a very discriminatory way um or, or does we include in that concept machines right um and uh, it doesn't matter whether machines are learning language as much as they're learning it differently from humans. Um, I would say yes in two ways. One is um, to the extent that we're claiming that the machines are a model that we're going to use to study humans, then we need to be very clear about what the similarities and differences are, because that gives us the limits of the model. Um, and then secondly, if we're going to be building technology that people are using, the way in which the system was learned might put some some limits, or tell us something about the resulting system um, that we need to know about to have safe deployment. And where safety there includes sufficient transparency for the user that they know what's going on and, and where this text that they're encountering is coming from.
2: Agreed, Ev. Uh,
0: yeah, largely. I I think for for the most um, for the most part. I mean, I think um, again, I'm really. Um, excited. I have this renewed excitement about using these models to try to understand something about how humans learn. And in fact, I just um, have a postdoc who started yesterday, <laughs> Cheng Zhizhuang, who comes from Dan Yemens's group, oh. uh, who is interested in exactly this question of how do you need to train a model differently on linguistic input, including cross-modal um, uh, data or different learning algorithms, uh, which are more uh, human childlike, or a different nature and amounts of input, and seeing whether models trained in these more likely ways, more similar ways to human children, capture something about responses and developing brains to language. And I think that's a really cool and exciting enterprise. Um, And uh, I'm optimistic. I mean, I am a very strong optimist. So I'm optimistic that we can learn something that has been hard to learn with just having access to uh, human neural data and being limited to these kinds of verbal hypotheses about how things happen. Um, in terms of symbolic versus non-symbolic, it's a, it's a hard, um, uh, it's a, it's a hard issue. Uh, I don't think we have great proposals for how symbols can be instantiated in neurons. Um, which is not to say that that's not how it is, but, um, it would be great to try to uh, move a little bit more in that direction, and I think some of our thinking certainly is uh, symbolic. And how much of that characterizes the language system? I think it's. Uh, <laughs> I think there. I think I probably am less less strongly on the symbolic side, purely symbolic side, than you, Emily. Which is fine, right? We can disagree. That's <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um,
0: but
2: What about our bodies? I mean, so there's this grounding issue, right? That language needs to be grounded in the real world for meaning to um, adhere. Do we, you know, thinking about how we learn language, are, is our biology important? Are our bodies, the embodiment that we have, is that important for language? But, you know, so Ev, like, you know, you're going to be training these different models, giving them different kinds of input, but... They still don't have um, <laughs> bodies. They're not grounded in the world, right, so to speak.
0: It's a very good question. I mean, I think um, the literatures to pay attention to here are um, concern evidence from um, individuals with very different developmental experiences. There are individuals who are born without limbs or individuals who are born blind or individuals who are born deaf or have other differences in how they experience the world. Um, and... Uh, one thing that we've learned from some of these studies is that um, a lot of these perceptual and motor experiences just don't seem to be critically needed to learn really sophisticated uh, models of the world, to acquire sophisticated models of the world. So, so you know, a striking example like congenitally blind individuals' knowledge of the color space, or really visual concepts like glance versus glare, and things like that. Are very similar to those of uh, to individuals um, who have had access to visual input growing up. And I think what this tells you is that a lot of that information is redundantly represented in the regularities in language. And I think there's interesting questions you can ask given that, but um, whether a model needs to interact uh, perceptually and in motorways uh, with its environment, I think it's an empirical question. Um, And I think we'll, you know, and people are trying to build embodied language systems. Um, And again, I'm less excited about building it for the goal of building it. Uh, Like I'm interested in how will the representations of linguistic meanings, for example, be different for those kinds of models compared to these disembodied um, text synthesizers, as Emily called them.
1: I think there's a lot to be really careful about here when we talk about the experiences of people with developmental differences and, and you know, congenitally blind folks and so on, um, because there's a there's a move that the people who are interested in promoting the language models as minds rather than as text synthesizing machines make, where they draw an analogy between language models and um, the experiences of, of deafblind people, for example. Um, and- uh, it ends up just always coming across as terribly dehumanizing. And, and I mean, because it, it, it is like that, that analogy is inherently dehumanizing. Um, and I'm in the middle of an ongoing Twitter argument about it again because people keep doing it. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's not that any given f- aspect of our physicality of our sensory apparatus, um, is inherently required. Um, but rather, I think and when, when you said redundantly encoded, I was actually thinking, you were, I was making a prediction about you going a different direction <laughs> based on, on my thoughts, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is that uh, our experience of the world is redundantly encoded, right? We have many different ways of experiencing the world. And we have also many different ways of, of performing intersubjectivity and sharing experiences of the world. Um, and I think that that's what gives us the toehold in learning the linguistic system. And then once we've acquired a linguistic system, we can use it, um, like you say, to get at information that's redundantly encoded in language. And it's not just um, distributional. So people will often say, you know, um, the, the distributional hypothesis is that meaning is use, right? Wittgenstein says meaning is use. And my retort to that always is, right, but use isn't just distribution, right? Use is use in some specific communicative context, which is embodied, and that's probably important, but I don't think any particular aspect of the embodiment is um, th- there's facts of embodiment, but um, there's a lot of redundancy there, and so I think that um, what's what's missing is not so much embodiment as experience of the world or what's necessary is experience of the world. Um, and when we talk about the world, it's important to keep in mind that the world is not just um, the physical and natural world around us but also the social world that we inhabit. Um, And so there's, there's a a lot of richness and complexity there, um, that we are situated in. Um, and that seems to be, is it, is it necessary for learning is, um, maybe the kind of question that, that building these artificial models would help us answer. But it certainly is, um, a fact of how we learn because, you know, we are all situated in our world and, and that's where our learning is taking place.
2: I know that you're very, both, both very busy people. So maybe we can just end on, Sort of an open ended question. Um, Ev, you were just talking about how optimistic, how foolishly optimistic you are. <laughs> Put a judgment in there. I didn't say foolish. No, I said foolish. <laughs> yeah, <I'm sorry>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. And Emily, it seems like you have uh, more of a doom and gloom proje- projection toward the future. I have children, and we're in the midst of. You know, battling the screen time issue, and my daughter talks to the phone to call a song up, and I'm somewhat terrified um, for their future interacting with these things, but because of our um, proclivity, but because of our uh, tendency to anthropomorphize, and uh, but I don't know that my uh, terror is well founded because we're terrible at predicting the future as humans, as you know. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, maybe we can start with you, Emily, if am I right in thinking that it's a doom and gloom scenario or do you see light at the end of the tunnel and uh, that good will will come out of uh, large language models and whatever happens next? Because next year we'll, we won't be talking about transformers. We'll be talking about something else, right?
1: Yeah, let's, let's call them exfoliators. Um, just to pick <laughs> a random word. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm laughing at being characterized as not an optimist because, because personally who I am, I'm actually very optimistic. Um, and I think my optimism is rooted in a sense of we collectively make our world, right? We, we live in it, we learn in it, and we also create it. Um, and so it's up to us, right? Um, not, not any one of us individually, but all of us collectively, um, can make decisions and we can, um, make decisions, you know, regarding language technology, for example, around, okay, well, what kind of regulation do we want to put in place? What kind of transparency do we want to require? What kind of data protection do we want to require? And so on. These aren't going to be easy things to do, but they are things that we can do. Um, and I think when you're talking about the fear that you have as a parent of um, screen time and how your kids are going to be interacting with things, um, I feel like we can be empowered through transparency in many ways. And I th- think that there's a course correction that's needed away from technology that's leaning into our proclivities to anthropomorphize and towards technology that is designed to be helpful tools to assist people in doing what we want to do and not um, take advantage or, as I say in one of my op-eds, abuse our empathy.
2: But that's not going to happen because technologists won't don't care about that, right? Um, in a capitalist society, for example, it's there's th- the regulation whether we could actually do it well is a different question um i i tend to think that we're not good at regulating things either or you know that that's just a a different road that may be unwise but i don't i just don't see um <laughs> i don't see the regulators um the well-intended regulators catching up with the technologists
1: so I, yeah i mean it's not it's not something that's necessary optimism isn't saying oh it's all going to be okay right optimism is saying we have Could the opportunity be. to try to make it okay. Yeah. Um and I know that there's a bunch of work going on right now in Europe around an AI Act. Um and I think that um what I'm hearing about is that there's some sensible stuff in there and some stuff that's missing the mark and a lot of people who are working in the space around um technology policy and regulation are engaging. Like that that's also a whole field of study. Um and um yes, you're right that the forces of capitalism have certainly pushed things in, you know, a specific direction, but I also think that most people working on technology are actually interested in working on it to make people's lives better. Um, and, um, that there probably is a lot of goodwill that could be leveraged.
2: Uh, I'm the most pessimistic person here. I can tell. <laughs> F, do you, do you share Emily's?
0: I, yeah, I think that was right on the mark. I mean, I will also say another thing there is, I was trying to remember the quote, but there's these, um, actually a few quotes from, uh, Children from parents worrying about their children from centuries ago, yeah, cool. where All new right. technology comes. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, your kids are going to be okay. I know, I, I know. Kids but... come with their, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't know. Um, I have a five year old and she likes her screens and she learns a ton from the screens. Sure. And so, what? So, learning mechanism like lear- ways to learn information have changed, but fundamentally, you know, humans come in with a very good brain with a lot of tissue, much more tissue to do abstract reasoning than animals do. That's one difference. Again, it's a, a qual- quantitative difference rather than a qualitative one. But when you have a lot of space to play with that's not taken up by perception and motor control, you can notice patterns, you can make generalizations, you can connect things that nobody else had connected before. Um, and that um, makes a you know fun and powerful tool that we all have in our heads, much more so than probably any other tool that will never be created by us. but
2: Yeah, okay. I could go on and on about my children and the...
0: <laughs> your worries, the, yeah. The
2: worries, but um, I guess we'll, we'll we'll leave it here. Thank you both so much for your time, and thank sure. you for your work Great. and continued success.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It was very nice to meet you, Emily. Nice to meet you. Yes. Likewise. It nice a really interesting both. discussion. Great. Thank you. Yeah, that was fun.
2: I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI: The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.